0: This is Your Itinerary for Travel and Photography with your host, Rob Knight.
1: On Your Itinerary this week, I talk with photographer and educator Shiv Verma. Shiv and I discuss our travel planning strategies and some tips for organizing photo tours and workshops. This episode is brought to you by Digital Photo Adventures. Plan your next adventure at digitalphotoadventures.com. Welcome to Your Itinerary. My guest this week is a photographer named Shiv Verma. and Shiv is based in Rentham, Massachusetts. But uh he's all over the place. He's a published photographer and educator and a workshop leader. He he does workshops in Iceland and Africa and India and several here in the United States. Uh welcome to the show, Shiv.
0: Thanks, Rob. Uh, pleasure. It was actually a pleasure meeting you in uh, PhotoPlus Expo. And uh you know hopefully we can continue this relationship.
1: That sounds great. And and that's how uh that's how Shiv and I met was at the Lumix booth at the PhotoPlus Expo in New York. And uh, I, we tried to do the interview while we were there, but trying to find a quiet spot in New York is is quite a challenge. So, so here we are, and thanks for, uh, thanks for meeting up with me. Great. Um, I, was, I was looking at your work on your website, and, and you have some beautiful stuff there. And uh, you do all sorts of things from commercial work to uh, stock photography to workshops. But it seems like so much of your work happens on the road. Um, is, that, is that pretty accurate? How much of your work is done on location in one way or another?
0: i'd say about uh 80% on location 20% in studio i mean the, the commercial work of course a lot of it is in studio uh but yeah you know, there is uh, still some commercial work particularly as it pertains to um the architectural and lighting uh you know projects that i've been doing for uh, builders and, and various other sort of lighting manufacturers that have in fact now come out with some pretty unique lighting arrangements for both exteriors and interiors. So that would be the 20% that is done, uh, in studio kind of, gotcha. but the is, is, is all, all, all on location.
1: Great. So, so that's basically the way you work. Is that how you prefer to do it? You, you don't, um, you don't miss being in the studio and kind of locked down to one spot, huh?
0: Um, no, not at all. In fact, I'd much rather be on the road.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, and I mentioned your workshops in the introdu- introduction: uh, Iceland, India, and Africa. These are these are places that everybody seems to want to go nowadays. Um, how do you decide on the locations for your workshops? Do you do you respond to sort of your customer requests, or or um, do you take people to places that that you enjoy?
0: Well, it's a bit of both. Uh, one of the things that Iceland, as an example, uh, the aurora borealis, you know, becomes. You know, a cyclical uh, issue that we have to deal with uh, it has an 11-year cycle so you've got to look at the peak time of when the aurora is going to be in its maximum uh, state and so i tend to then orient more workshops in iceland when we have peak aurora conditions uh, 2014 2013 were the two peak years uh 2015 we're going to start seeing a bit of a decline so rather than doing four workshops in Iceland in 2015 i'll probably end up now doing only three you know pull one out and and include another location so some of it is really based upon what transpires at a particular location uh to to maximize you know other the the workshop participants their opportunity to really get the kind of images that they expect during that time now the the other times of Iceland, the, the June workshop is more uh, both landscape as well as for some wildlife, and then the September workshop is purely purely oriented towards landscape photography with some of the fall colors, because Iceland you know fall colors come in a little earlier, albeit there are not too many trees in Iceland, but there is still a change in colour that does take place. So yeah, that's how I try and sort of focus the time frames and locations. Uh, to maximize opportunity for participants
1: nice and th- and that's a big deal because it seems like with everyone leading workshops nowadays and um and so many opportunities for people to travel it's important to find a workshop leader that really goes that extra mile and and that sort of planning is really important um Shiv, what sort of resources do you use when you're planning a trip like that are are there particular websites you can recommend or or um like how do you find out what the the cycle is for the aurora borealis for example
0: well i think we have probably in the us some of the best uh, uh you know sites to you know provide that kind of information the the education the university of alaska has probably the most comprehensive aurora borealis uh, forecasting mechanism and you know that's that's primarily what i use but then you know that's based upon a five-day or, or a maximum of a 10-day forecast. And you can't you know rely on the sun doing its thing uh, on a periodic basis. It is not something that can be truly forecast like you would forecast an eclipse. But you still get pretty decent information. And if you look at the history um, and you look at the cycle of what's going on, you start seeing, okay, now we're getting into peak period 2012, 2013. It, becomes better 2014 or the winter of 2013-14 was about the best and then you start start seeing the decline but uh, you know for for any kind of work today all you need to do is you know do a google search and you'll find stuff Uh, and that's what I would recommend if people are really interested in doing it themselves but more importantly if you're interested in you know the aurora then just google aurora photography workshops and you'll probably hit a few sites that have, uh, you know, an opportunity for you to participate and uh, go on one of those trips.
1: Sure. So it sounds like the Aurora uh, in particular is sort of a more intense version of really any kind of workshop planning when you're trying to figure out when the weather's going to be the best. Or um, I know here in the southeast, trying to plan around a trip to the Smoky Mountains when the leaves are going to turn. Uh, you just basically play it. You basically play the averages and then hope for the best.
0: Well, I think Iceland, you're basically doing the same thing. Um, You know, Iceland weather is probably the most unpredictable. Um, As they say, you know, if you don't like it, wait five minutes, it'll be different. Sure. Uh, You know, pretty much like what one would say in New England, but Iceland is more so. And and the other thing is that, um, you know, if you are going to Iceland, be prepared to be wet. No matter what time of year, you're going to be wet. If it's not wet with rain, it's wet with mist. If it's not wet with mist, it's snow. So... You know, that's something that's a given. Uh, you do a trip to Africa, it's a whole different ballgame. You know exactly what the weather is going to be like because it's, uh, you know, not unpredictable. India is the same way. Uh India has rains during the monsoon season, and otherwise there is no rain. So you don't go, you know, with rain gear when you're going on a, uh, you know, Indian safari or an African safari. So those types of situations I think are more... uh Sort of manageable rather than, you know, an Iceland situation, which is totally, you know, a foregone conclusion that it's going to be problematic. So be prepared for it.
1: Sure. It sounds like a trip to India or Africa would be much easier to plan ahead for, um, at least in that respect. I I know, yes. uh, When I do my trips to Costa Rica, I go in September, and people tell me all the time, well, why do you go in September? That's the start of the rainy season. But from my experience, it's kind of like going to Florida in the summertime you'll you can count on about an hour or two of rain every day and you just shoot around it and it's not a big deal but if you you know if you take the the gospel according to the internet, then you just wouldn't go that time of year and um, you just have to have i think that experience in a place like your experience in iceland you you understand what to expect and you can um, lead your participants around uh, based on that
0: yeah and and I think the other thing Rob is when, when you when you're doing workshops, uh, you have to be prepared for situations where, you know, it may be that a location that you had picked for that particular day uh, becomes uh, virtually impossible to shoot at. So you're looking for an alternate. And, and as long as you have alternate locations that provide your workshop participants an opportunity for, you know, both education as well as good imagery, then you know that's that's the way to manage uh, you know Costa Rica yes you could have a whole day of rain uh and not be able to go out anywhere but you know you definitely can plan something else you can do some indoor work or you can you know figure out something else to deal with or maybe just convert it to an educational day
1: absolutely and and again that uh that experience um definitely plays into that and and once you know a place then Uh, you have the alternate locations and the uh, sort of plan B figured out for everywhere you're going. I would agree. Yes. Well, um, how often do you travel just for yourself? Just, uh, you know, how often do you take a trip to go shooting and, uh, and how do you go about deciding where you're going to go next?
0: Uh, Very interesting that you bring that up. Uh, One of the things that I like to do is, and, and just as an FYI, my wife is, an equally avid photographer, um, so we will we will start contemplating uh, you know a new location for another workshop. so at this particular juncture, without giving too much away, um, I'm looking very seriously at doing a vietnam slash southeast Asian um, workshop. so what will happen is uh, you know we'll we'll figure out we'll start talking to people, we'll start building an itinerary based upon some local guide information. And then the two of us will go out and scout it out with a definitive uh, set of guidelines. Okay, what do we do morning to evening? Where are we going to stay? We want to try those places out. (coughs) We want to make sure that we're going to have the right vehicles available to transport people. Uh, you know, look at all the liability issues. And I think that's really critical. You don't want to end up in a situation where you can't solve for a problem. I mean, somebody can fall sick, somebody can break a bone. So you need to make sure that all of those pieces are in place. So scouting is not just photographic scouting or location scouting. It's actually scouting for all eventualities within that time frame that you're going to be there. So we'll prepare for that. We'll even prepare for, you know, who's the first doctor that you're going to call? What's the first emergency room that you're going to be looking at? Uh, you know, all of that is is mapped out. And once we're satisfied, then we say, okay, we're going to put a plan together. And she does most of my planning for me as far as the itinerary is concerned. I have the luxury
1: of then leading the workshop. Wow. Nice. We'll give her my number because <laughs> so I could use that. <laughs> I uh, will do that. <laughs> and that's that's the kind of thing that um I think people don't really think about when they think, well I'm going to go on this workshop or people tell me, oh man, I, you're you're all over the place. You must be having a great time. But so much of the the actual workshop is just what you described. It's going and and figuring out where people are going to stay and how people are going to get there. And um uh a, a friend of mine wants to Help me lead workshops. So he says, "Man, I've got a great idea. Let's go to this place." And so I start asking him, "Okay, where are we going to stay? What does it cost? What are people going to spend on food? All these questions, and that he just didn't really think about. Right. Um, and and that's the kind of thing that you get from uh, a workshop. That um, honestly, people tend to not do. I think as much when they're training. Planning a personal trip for themselves. When when we go on trips to to scout for something where we're going to plan on taking people, we're, we're thinking about so many other things. But you brought up an interesting point with um, you know medical eventualities and things like that. That's really important for people to think about in their own travel. Yes. Um, do you recommend doing um, any sort of uh, insurance, travel insurance, or travel medical insurance?
0: I do and you know I also sort of make sure that you know travel insurance it's it's great to have travel insurance that's that's all fine, well and good but travel insurance doesn't tell you what to do in case of an eventuality right all it says is you will be covered but covered I mean where do I go I mean I've I've got now a a a participant in the workshop who's got let's say an injured leg fell off a cliff uh Yeah, the insurance will cover the the costs, but you've got to find treatment for the person. And then you've got to also try and very quickly ascertain, what are you going to do with the rest of the participants while you're taking care of this one person? Because they're not all workshops where I have co-leaders. I may be the only leader. Uh, So you've got to make sure that your local guides, if you're using local guides or your local drivers, are also well-versed with what the eventuality requires. Uh, You know, where do you drive them? Okay, I can leave this group in this particular location and they can continue to shoot for the next one hour while this person is being taken care of or being driven to, you know, a good medical facility. Um, Insurance is well and good, but it doesn't work in the spur of the moment. It only works later on.
1: Right. Um, So, you know,
0: I mean, even things like, what do you do for air ambulance situations? You know, you may be at a location where there is no real quick way to get a person in and out of there. I mean, if you're out there in the in the wilds of Africa, um, do you think that you can get into a Jeep and drive to a medical facility and get there in time to solve the problem? No, you've got to figure out, you know, what's the air ambulance going to do for you and how quickly will they be able to get there? And who do you call for that? right so, you know i mean all of this is 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 planning that i hate to say it, but i really wonder at times and, and to be honest with you i've never been on anybody else's workshop so i don't know what others do but i do hope that other workshop leaders and particularly those that are doing photography workshops are taking these types of things into consideration tour operators they do it i mean that's their job that's their business but I don't think all photography workshop leaders truly take into consideration all of these eventualities.
1: I think that's true. I think a lot of photographers um, start with the photography and sort of get around to whatever tour operation that they have to do. Um, I was I had sort of a trial by fire on the first workshop that I ever led. Uh, it was in Costa Rica and on the coast. And I had a gal, I, I rented uh, quads I rented a t v s for everybody and we were riding and this gal rode hers off a cliff and we had to get the the uh, air ambulance to come and and the whole thing it was i mean it was a nightmare, but that was talk about the worst case scenario yeah you know when the the local um ambulance guy looks at me and says she needs a helicopter. And I said, okay. And he said, it's $8,000. Right. (laughs) I mean, I will never forget the pit in my stomach that (laughs) came from that statement. But everything worked out, and and the gal was fine. She broke her wrist. She just Mm -hmm. twisted her wrist. I I mean, after riding a four-wheeler off of a 50-foot cliff into a riverbed, she broke her wrist. That was it. So I I was lucky on so many levels for that, but that really set the stage for um, how far I go to plan every little detail from that point on
0: i think rob what you're saying is absolutely i mean you know if if other photography workshop leaders are are going to listen to these podcasts um that they they all need to pay heed to some very basic things and i consider these to be basics uh you know to me it's less important the quality of the hotel and the quality of the food it's more important to take care of situations, or to be prepared for situations that could be much more problematic than somebody getting, you know, a deli Belly, as I call it.
1: Right. Absolutely, and and I think the, um, I think having a local guide goes a long way towards solving a lot of those those issues and and just helping you be more prepared because, um, you know, if you've got a guy who lives in the area and is familiar with the area, then. Anything you need, you can ask him, and even if you 're just planning a trip uh, just with your family you can it's usually not very expensive to hire a local guide to show you around you can let them know ahead of time what you're looking for what you want to shoot and uh, and they can help you and also be there uh, in any sort of you know dire circumstance
0: right right and, and and that that is that is that is critical i mean
1: at times uh, you know what i'll do is I may
0: use um, like a, an agency um, that provides vehicles and that could also do some of the local legwork as far as, you know, booking hotels and booking places. And they become a secondary point of contact. And I'll always tell them that, yep, yeah, this is all great, you've done ABC, but let me know phone numbers, contacts, names, etc. of all of the other facilities that I may require. That includes things like medical and includes things like you know where does somebody get a pair of galoshes if they need it? Sure. So, so you know you can't end up. You know you arrive in a place and say, "Oh, I forgot this." Well, where do you get it? You need to know. It's it's you know if you don't know that, then they're going to think. You know what kind of arrangements have you done? Absolutely. The, this comes on you. I mean, it's you know, you're you're the one, you're the target, first person to blame. That's Dr. right. Workshop leader,
1: he's the problem. Absolutely. So. One of the things that I, uh, I finally got around to doing this year that I had always sort of intended to do was buy an unlocked cell phone. And anytime you leave the country, at, at this point, pretty much anywhere in the world has a similar, you can get this, uh, what they call a quad band cell phone and just yeah. buy an SD card or a, a SIM card when you get there. Yeah. So when I go to Costa Rica, I, by the time I've gotten there, I have my driver's number programmed, the, all the hotels, the uh, emergency numbers, they're all programmed into this phone. So all I have to do is stop at the airport, pick up a SIM card for, I think I paid $20, and it'll, it'll be enough minutes to last me the next five years of trips in Costa Rica. So um, if I need to call the hotel and say, hey, we're running late, or, or can you hold dinner, mm-hmm. it's not a big deal.
0: There was, uh, I, I do something very similar, but now what's happened is that since I tend to go back to the same place over and over again, I have SIM cards for each country. Right. And so prior to even going there, I can tell the workshop participants that in an emergency, you know, yes, we know which hotels you're going to stay at and you can be contacted in this hotel, but in an emergency while we're out there in the field, Here's my Iceland number, here's my India number, here's my Africa number. Right. So as long as you use that um uh, the card within a period of six months, it stays live. Otherwise, most countries what they'll do is they'll they'll kill your number. Mm-hmm. Not only do they kill the number, they'll also kill all the remaining minutes on it.
1: I see. So That's a good the, tip.
0: Yeah, so the typical thing is use it within six months or negotiate with the carrier. That, yeah, you're going to come back after a year, could they not disconnect it?: Sure now, in India, there is a government stipulation that they have to do it, so you can't negotiate with them hmm. so in in that situation, what I do is I leave my phone or my SIM card with my one of the tour operators and say, "Just you know make one phone call every six months if I'm not going to be coming back
1: right That's and a, that's a know, good tip, yeah, so they 'll do that. Right. So, what what other tips can you give for someone who say they're not planning a workshop? They're just planning a trip to, uh, let's say, Iceland. Um, mm-hmm. and They're going to take their spouse. They're going to do some shooting. What um, What's sort of a, a must see kind of a thing when they go there? What how do you How do you recommend people get the most out of um, a week in a place that they've never been before?
0: Um, I think and this is not to to sound crazy, but if you are a photographer and you, you want to go to a new place and you want to maximize it all on your own, then, uh, again, Google some workshops and have a look at what the photography itinerary looks like. And then follow it in the most part. I mean, you may not get all of what the workshop would deliver to you, but this is public knowledge. So a good workshop itinerary is an ideal itinerary to follow on a personal
1: basis i I think that's great advice for sure
0: so that that's where we you know sort of sometimes shy away and you'll find a lot of you know workshop leaders maybe they don't put up a complete itinerary because they think somebody will steal their ideas you know eventually locations will get known Um, you may not understand, you know, when the best light is, or you may not understand what the best time to go there would be, but at least from a location point of view, it's a good way to plan out your trip.
1: Right. And I think if you are leading a workshop and the main thing you have to offer is your itinerary, then you're not providing much of a service to your clients. Um, in other words, when I take people to Costa Rica, I take them to many of the same locations that other workshops will take them. But I'm providing an experience, yes. and, and I'm introducing them to local people. And we're spending time doing things that the normal tourist there at the same time in the same place is not going to get. So, like I said, if you're leading workshops and you're worried about someone stealing your itinerary, then, then maybe you need to be adding something to, to what you offer your clients.
0: You're you're absolutely right. I think the the workshop experience, location is only the place where you plant your feet. It's the rest of it. And, and, And to a great extent, Rob. I mean, I think what we need to, as workshop leaders, need to emphasize that it's not just the location. It's how to maximize the location. And then once you've got your images, how to maximize even the post work that you do with those images. You know, a workshops not necessarily a Photoshop training session but there are certain things that people uh you know forget about when they're out there in location you know what do I do with the situation where I think I see grey skies and you say well you know if you do see a grey sky don't shy away think about what you can do with that grey sky there is some detail and maybe you can maximize it so a lot of the post uh you know, shooting sessions involve critiques, involve working through the images, and also the education process of how to maximize what you've captured. Right. So it, it's it's a, it's a lot more than just location. I mean, I, itinerary, give it away. You know, I don't care.
1: Sure. And I think the other thing that a lot of photographers get out of a workshop is the other photographers, is that camaraderie and um, not just sharing information, images and information with the instructor, but sharing those images with other people. Because Absolutely. when you see, you know, six or eight or ten other images that were made in the same spot that you were just in that look a hundred percent different than what you shot, that's that's how you grow and you learn as an artist. Oh. You see how other people see the same thing and that's that can um that really enhances the experience. It's not just who the instructor is, but it's it's uh, you know in the bus on the way back from a shoot where everybody's passing around their cameras and oh man, I got this and look, you know that's uh, that's probably ninety percent of what people get out of a workshop. A lot oh, of times that's
0: so valuable. That is so valuable. You know, one of the things that we were discussing briefly at uh, at Voto Plus Expo was how do you how do you you know sort of team people up together to to really become. Uh, adjuncts to what you are delivering. Uh, You know, you you won't always have inexperienced people. You'll have experienced people. You have inexperienced people. And sometimes it's worth teaming them up so that the not-so-experienced person can glean from the person who is experienced. But one of the things that I've always noticed is that the inexperienced person notices things that experienced photographers don't. So it gives the experienced photographer another viewpoint from somebody who is considered inexperienced but may have a far superior eye than the photographer does. And you, know, you build up that relationship, you build up that camaraderie which goes a long way and nobody feels at the end of it that uh, they've been deprived.
1: Nice, that's, that's great advice too. Because I think as, a, as an experienced photographer, a lot of times we tend to shoot how we shoot so we're not necessarily looking for this, that, or the other uh, different viewpoint. We just, you know, I like to compose things in this particular way or shoot whatever it is, you know, HDR or or time-lapse or something like that. So like you said, an inexperienced person who's just there to sort of react to what's in front of them, they might see something that you missed. Yeah. Nice.
0: And that works That works really well. And uh, it, it sort of dawned on me when... Uh, on one of my workshops, there was this person who actually came with a point-and-shoot camera. And I was a little sort of perturbed that, you know, how would they do anything from a long exposure point of view? How would they capture in low-light situations and things? And, uh, you know, but you're not going to deny somebody their space on the workshop. They they've paid for it. So, we went along. And the first day, uh, and this was a lady, and Actually, this workshop was in uh, in your neck of the woods. It wasn't the Smoky Mountains, it was doing Cade's Cove. Mm-hmm. And uh, that evening, you know, she's passing her camera around and there's some absolutely incredible images. Uh, not necessarily technically perfect, but composition and, and, you know, what she saw and, you know, what she captured. And everybody's going, oh, wow, wow, wow. Can we go back there tomorrow? <laughs> you know right away that. You know, their brains are now ticking. This person got things that they missed, and they now want to go back to be able to capture similar images. You know, maybe that's how tripod holes get generated, but the fact is somebody's got to start somewhere.
1: That's right. That's right. It's not about the gear. And especially yeah. nowadays, as somebody that shows up with, a, with an entry-level camera that they bought within the last couple of years, it's more than capable of capturing a beautiful image. It's just a matter of what you see and, and how you use it.
0: Right. I mean, I've, I'm talking about years ago, Rob. This was like literally a point and shoot.
1: Right. Right. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. I mean, you're talking about talking about gear. We did a lot of talking about gear at the show, and uh, it just from as a as a workshop leaders' point of view, I tell you, I feel blessed that there is such a thing called a mirrorless camera. Right. Yeah. I mean, my my carrying capacity has increased. Uh, just because everything has become lighter and and i don 't have to worry so much you know there 's no no issue of leaving uh expensive gear in the car because you don 't need to you can carry it all with you you don't you don't have to worry about somebody smashing you know your car window or the the, the you know the uh trying to pry open your door to be you know they're stealing stuff that 's inside the car so uh, things have become really really very pleasant and and I enjoy the fact that uh you know the mirrorless world is formally being recognized as a perfect alternative.
1: Absolutely. How many of your uh, your clients and your workshop students are are carrying mirrorless cameras now? I know that from my experience, I'm more than 50% now show up with some sort of a mirrorless camera.
0: Um, yes, show up with some sort of a mirrorless camera. I would say about 30% show up with, mm-hmm. but not as their primary. They're still... Using the mirrorless as a secondary. Gotcha. Uh, I had, I had lots of, uh, you know, in, in my last Iceland trip, the September trip, I had quite a few people with mirrorless cameras doing their panoramas with the mirrorless, uh, you know, doing grab shots with the mirrorless. When we were walking around the streets of Reykjavik, yes, they carried their mirrorless, but when it comes down to a tripod settle down, you know, compose and shoot, uh, the mirrorless doesn't come out.
1: Gotcha. Interesting.
0: I'm still at that point where I think people are carrying them, not that they're not carrying them. Um, I don't carry my DSLRs anymore. I carry three mirrorless bodies with me. And people say, well, are you really just only shooting with mirrorless? And I said, yes. I mean, there's no reason not to. And so, you know, you'll find occasionally somebody will pull out a mirrorless and put it on a tripod. But I did notice that not one person on my trip actually had either an L plate or you know a a plate that would mount their mirrorless camera to their tripod interesting they they consider mirrorless cameras more of a handheld a handheld device right Uh, I think that'll change it 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 will definitely change
1: yeah I think it's definitely a matter of of perception at this and sort of uh conventional wisdom and uh, for example this last year in Costa Rica I had two clients who literally ordered uh, Lumix GH4s before they left to go home from Costa Rica. Wow. They saw what, what I was doing. I think there were three or four of us on the trip, uh, me and and a few of the students that had GH4s. Mm-hmm. And they were making images of everything, whether it was wildlife or uh, landscapes or portraits, anything that we were shooting. Um, they saw that we we weren't compromising. We weren't, oh, okay, the mirrorless is only good for you know, like you said, handheld shots, we were setting up landscape shots and shooting on the tripod and, and, um, shooting with flash and shooting high speed shots of hummingbirds. And it, it's a camera. It works like a camera. It just happens to not have a mirror and the image quality is fantastic. So they literally got on and online and ordered them before they even got home.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that speaks, that speaks to, you know, what I consider a trend that, we'll see more of. I think as people who are leading tours, as people within the tours who are using mirrorless demonstrate to uh, the skeptics that these cameras are equally good, if not better, uh, they too will change because it's a fact. I mean, we are all tired of carrying all that heavy gear around. That's right. It is not conducive to... You know, again, this is a Derek Story statement, and I love it. This is not conducive to being nimble. Right? Need to be nimble. I mean, you need to be able to get to the creativity aspects quickly, not have to worry about lugging everything around with you.
1: That's right. Or, or the problem that I see people have is they have a limited amount of, of space in their bag. They, they don't want to carry so many lenses. So they'll bring it with them, but then, well, I'm going to leave this lens in the room because I don't want to carry it. I'm going to save some space in my bag. Where if you have a, a micro four thirds kit like you and I have, why not? You're going to bring, bring your fisheye lens, bring your macro lens. There's no reason to leave it at home because it's so small and so easy to carry anyway. Um, and I, I I hate it for people when they're in this this place they may never be again and they right. say man I wish I had my macro lens but I left it in my room because it's so heavy and I mean with- today
0: on I you know I can carry lens range from 14 millimeters to 600 millimeters on my shoulder and not have to worry the whole day that's right I wouldn't be able to carry a 600 for more than two hours right so. That that kind of advantage is huge. And I think as we sort of get more and more into what the airlines are doing to us as travel photographers, the airlines are making it more and more difficult for us to carry lots of gear. Right. Uh, I, I noticed this time in my last September trip to Iceland, practically every second passenger getting onto that aircraft had to put their carry-on into the measuring box. Yep, and many of them didn't fit. So what happens? It goes into the hold. You don't want your camera gear there. No. So <laughs> you know, uh, from 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 just that aspect, I think the the photography world has to realize that if we can get smaller, uh, the airlines are not going to give us a hassle. That's true. Carry everything and put it in there and feel you know that it's it's safe. It's not going to get damaged or stolen.
1: Right. And especially when you're talking about something like a 600 millimeter lens, as you mentioned with the Lumix, my 100 to 300 gives me a 600 millimeter effective range and a lens that's the size of my hand. That's right. Instead of something that I have to have its own anvil case for and hire somebody to carry for me, you know, Um, and that's a huge difference when you're traveling. And so lots of places you go are not as friendly as the U.S. airlines and the carry on restrictions are even more strict. Um, I know the, the commuter flights in Costa Rica, you can carry 50 pounds with you, right? That's, that's your, your clothes, your camera, that's everything. You can carry 50 pounds. So, um, you know, if you've got a 600 millimeter lens, that's, you can carry maybe a change of underwear and you're done. So,
0: well, I mean, Africa is the same way. And, and not only that, but you know, they, then those airlines will expect you to buy additional seats, uh, so that your gear can be put on the seats rather than yourself. Right. Um, you know, you don't have the luxury of being able to take, you know, big pelican boxes and some of the smaller aircraft. The holes just don't have that capacity. So they're forcing you to use soft sided luggage and stuff it into these small little bins. So now that's not an issue anymore. Yep. That's but great. I, I, you know, talking about that same hundred three hundred, I did my Africa trip with a commitment to myself that this was going to be my first. Nature and Wildlife Workshop. I was not going to carry any DSLRs, and I made a concerted effort and did just what I decided I was going to do. So it was a 300 It was the thirty-five to one hundred, the uh, you know twelve to thirty-five, and the sixty millimeter macro. Those were my primary lenses. And did I have any problems? None whatsoever. I was you know. Uh, you know one retrospective with all the lenses and the camera gear in there put it into the hole carry it with you no worries whatsoever
1: yep that's great and you mentioned earlier it that allows you to focus more on what you want to shoot and not how you're going to drag all your stuff
0: absolutely you know we used to we used to go to you know situations where you took your tripod or a monopod and bungee cords and you know wrapped it around uh, so that the roll bar of the jeep acted as your support and then you you know lift up and mount your lens on on a wimbley and shoot and then dismount it and you don't need to do all of that you can carry a light tripod even a you know like one of those flexible leg things and wrap it around and drop your camera on it shoot and take it off or you know it's light enough to to handhold most of the lenses i don't recommend doing that with the uh you know the 300 millimeter range that the Panasonic lens can give you because it's still behaving like a 600 millimeter lens. Right. So you do need to stabilize it. You de- do need to put it on a tripod, uh, you know, preferably get a collar for it. Third party collars are available and and use it like a proper lens, but it's still that much lighter.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Even just taking the time to put it on a monopod or something like that. I've, the more I get into video, the more I've been traveling with just a monopod with a fluid head. Yep. And and that works great for uh, using that 100 to 300 for wildlife as well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more.
1: Well, Shiv, thanks so much, man. I, I think this was a great, great talk. And hopefully some people uh, will get something out of it for whether they're planning their own trip or whether they're planning a, a workshop. And uh, I was going to ask you uh, to give us one travel tip of the week. It can be a product or a destination or, um, you know, how to pack extra socks or whatever you you like? Um, Carry a garbage bag with you. Always carry a
0: large garbage bag with you. It can be folded up and put into your bag in your pocket. It's about the, the best thing that you can do on workshops. It can be your rain gear. It can be something you can lie down on. You can use it to cover your gear when it's bad weather, and you can always replace
1: it for a few cents. Great tip. Thanks, man. And where can people find you online?
0: Uh, www.shivarma.com. Everything is really linked there. I'm on Facebook, um, on Google+. Uh, I do some feeds into Twitter, but I'm not much of a Twitter person. But primarily
1: Facebook, Google+, and, and my website. Okay. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, and thanks for listening. And uh, It was a pleasure, and once again, uh, lovely meeting
0: you last week, and uh, look forward to doing something more with you soon.
1: Cheers, and I'll see you next week on Your Itinerary for Travel and Photography.
0: You've been listening to Your Itinerary with Rob Knight. Head over to thisweekinphoto.com to check out the other Twip shows and get on our mailing list. Become a TWIP member to get exclusive benefits and member pricing on TWIP products and workshops. Start planning your next adventure, and we'll see you next week on Your Itinerary for travel and photography.